this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Joining me today are two authors who are both on a quest to find new ways to listen and invite you to do the same. In their latest books, they ask us to reconsider our relationship with music and sound and how it makes us feel. Listen on Music, Sound and Us rejects the evangelism of many music writers and looks into how psychological pressure works when it comes to musical taste. And A Book of Noises, Notes on the Oraculus, shows us how we can pay closer attention to the sounds around us and become re-enchanted by sounds from the everyday to the celestial. Michelle Favor and Casper Henderson, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Thanks. What is sound, Casper? It is the vibration of matter. It's a wave passing through matter. So it's jiggling of atoms. And of course, it's also somebody hearing it. So we need to keep that in the equation as well. Well, so how do we hear, Michelle? Well, technically, the world is silent. It's the sound waves coming into our musical instruments, which are the sort of pods on the top of our necks that make the sounds and the music because there's drums in there and there's bits of bone that, you know, act as resonators. So we're really creating the oral world from quite abstract data that's coming in. Your books are similar but not. I mean, there are lots and lots of points where they, where they cross over, but you're, you're writing, although both about noises, essentially, you're, you're writing very different books. But I wonder, is, 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 there, is there a sort of zeitgeist moment about listening or sound at the moment? Why did you come to write this particular book right now, Casper? I don't really know. I mean, it's just I think I've been thinking about a book like this for quite some time and... I just finally got around to it. It may be that, yes, it is in the zeitgeist. I think I think if you have a half-good idea, there's a very big chance that several other people are having that idea at the same time. You, It's part of... It's in the water. I just... I wanted to go further and research and learn more because I've always loved music and been fascinated by sounds of all kinds, and this was my pretext for doing so. And I hope if I've shared something that people enjoy, then, hey, that's the job I've done. Because you're from a science writing background? Yeah, I was. I used to work in environmental policy and climate change work, and I still do a little bit of that. But I've been writing about science and nature, evolution, and our place in it for for some time. I wrote a book called "The Book of Barely Imagined Beings," a kind of Borges meets Darwin sort of thing, <laughs> a few years ago, and I've just kept at it for a few years now. And Michelle, you say in your book, this is the book that you have always wanted to write. Yes, but first of all, I, I do want to reassure readers that, you know, without wanting to, to make unfair generalizations about politics, Casper's uh, book does not read like it was written by someone who's been working in policy somewhere. No, right? it's no it, it is a, it's, it's a lovely, lovely book. It's got, it's got a beautiful tone. I, yes, did want to write this book since I was a teen. I remember cutting quotes out of Melody Maker and New Musical Express thinking, when I write my book about music, this is when I'm 16 years old, this will really sort of be emblematic of this particular issue. And then, of course, I, I lost the little bits of paper. But it does go way back to, to when I was teen. But I mean, it's very different from, from the rest of your work in terms of, of things like Under the Skin or The Crimson Petal in the White or The Book of Strange New Things. 
Well, it's different, obviously, in that it's non-fiction. It's different in that there's quite a lot of scientific research quoted and there are interviews and so forth. But it's similar in the sense that my fiction tends to be from an alien perspective. And again, with music, because I experience music so differently from other people, there is that alienated perspective of an almost anthropological extraterrestrial perspective of what is going on here with the humans and, and the music. Quite extraordinary. And we'll get back to why you experience it differently. <laughs> I wanted to just examine your title, Casper, for a moment, because oraculous is, well, it's a made up word, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a made up word. I mean, you know, why not? So I took miraculous. And in the introduction to the book, I mentioned an experience hearing a great congregation of birds coming over my head and listening to the extraordinary sound of their wing beats and just occurred to me that sometimes what you hear is as intriguing and marvelous and strange as the ears are no less open potentially to wonder than the eyes so if you have miraculous from to look at a wonder why not have oraculous mm-hmm. so that was the idea you split the book up into four categories Yeah, so there's um, an American sound artist, originally a rock musician, a guy called Bernie Krauser, known for a book called The Great Animal Orchestra. And he came up with a geophony for the sounds of the earth and biophony, sounds of non-human life, and anthropophony, awkward word for human sounds of all Mm -hmm. kinds, good and bad. And I took those three and added a fourth category of cosmophony, which is sounds of the universe. Because as I said at the top, anywhere there is matter that's has energy, there'll be acoustic waves, including in the, in the very early universe. Mm. And it's on human sounds where these books really do cross over. Michelle, you you write in a, in a beautiful way and we get lots of bits of, of memoir, although you often say this is not a book about what I like and I'm mm. not going to try and convince you to like someone else. Lots of wonderful asides in the book too, some very funny asides. But it, it has got bits of memoir in it. It does. It is true that you would be very hard put to figure out what my record collection is and and what I like because I don't like that dynamic that you get in so many music books where the author seems to be implying that if you just take a leaf from my book and follow my directives, you will become a better human being because you'll upgrade your taste, etc. So in that sense, it's not personal. But it is personal in the sense that you, you get a sense of where I came from and what shaped me and why I why I am as I as I am and originally I didn't want it to have any sort of memoir aspect but as I went along it crept in and I was reassured that actually this will help people bond with the book because it's a peculiar enough book already without having that human connection with the author so, yes, in, in the end, I, I thought it would actually help to have a bit of Michelle in it. Mm, and it certainly does. It's beautifully done. Now, it's also about how we appreciate music and how we're told that stuff is cool. And that sort of goes through like what we wear and, and all sorts of things, how we write about music, how we appreciate it. But, of course, music goes back to such an ancient route. I mean, we don't know where music began, but you write about the Bayaka people in northern Congo. Yes, so the Bayaka sometimes referred to as pygmy people. They're one of these, they go back a very long way, probably at least tens of thousands of years, and they have a extraordinary complex music 
Of course they do. You know, they're humans. And uh, so they have polyphonies and complex rhythm patterns. And their music is absolutely integrated in every part of their daily life, in hunting, in caring for children, in celebration. They talk to the forest. They listen to the forest. An American, he was kind of a, well, he was a musicologist of a kind, a guy called Luisano in the 90s, went to live with them and recorded their music and you can hear that you can find this quite easily online extraordinary sounds and I think in some ways you know as wonderful if I can use that word without falling into cliche as any music you might hear and the knowledge that probably music very like this goes back at least tens of thousands of years maybe even before modern humans perhaps who knows uh, I think is a very very important and remarkable thing. Mm. You both write about how the first sounds we hear are are in the mother's womb. Yes. Tell us more. (laughs) Well, a couple of the early chapters uh, are about babies and children in the book. And I skewer is possibly too uh, violent a word, but I um, seriously question this notion that you can make your babies smarter by playing the Mozart while they're in the womb. But that is a multi-million dollar industry. It is. I tried it. My kid's not too bad, so maybe it works. <laughs> <laughs> it is terribly, terribly loud in the womb. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of pumping and whooshing and extremely noisy bloodstream stuff going on. So I feel that probably the music that would remind a person of lovely times that they had in the womb would be very, very noisy avant-garde music, which is not what... <laughs> what young mums would think of playing their baby. But, you know, there it is. Yeah. Well, that whole connection, though, between what we listen to and what we remember. I mean, you write a lot about nostalgia and why we feel that way about certain tracks. Yeah. Well, when you say we, what I'm, of course, trying to tackle there and and come to terms with is that I myself am incapable of feeling nostalgia possibly to do with my neurodivergence or possibly also because I had a very traumatic childhood and don't remember my early years at all. So the almost universal human experience of hearing a song and being taken right back to being 7 or 12 or 15 or whenever that thing lodged in in one's consciousness, I don't have that. So my relationship with music has had to go by you know, a different route. And you have tinnitus. And I have tinnitus, although since writing the book, I've had so much sympathy from people. Oh, you've got tinnitus. I've got tinnitus too. And they're clearly having a much worse time than I am. What does it sound like in your head? It's high-pitched. It sounds like a old-fashioned train slowing down, you know, with the the wheels making that squealing sound on the old-fashioned tracks. But the thing is, I love a lot of electronic music, particularly sort of abrasive electronic music, so those sounds are not unpleasant in themselves, obviously because I can't choose my tinnitus and it's there all the time. That's unfortunate, But I feel that compared to so many of the illnesses and the degenerative conditions that people on this planet have to deal with, I think tinnitus, in my case, is is quite a gentle burden to bear. 
But when I was talking to the musician Natalie Merchant recently, who also has tinnitus, and I was talking about how I relate to mine, she ruefully said, well, you can have mine too. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about noise or bad noise or noise pollution. What makes a sound bad? There's nothing good nor bad, and I think he makes it so, right? I mean... A lot of Shakespeare in Casper's book. But there are some great literary well, references running throughout uh, the book, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, I, I mean, I guess the straightforward answer is it's unwanted sound. But, I mean, there's many kinds. One of, one of the things that I learnt more about and I, left me feeling really deeply disturbed is, is noise pollution in the ocean. There's, you know, we humans are pretty active, a lot of shipping, but particularly things like seismic surveys searching for oil beneath the beneath the seabed <clears throat> creates enormous, very, very loud sounds. And it's hugely disturbing to them what live there. And uh, are very destructive. Of course, it's out of sight, out of mind, out of, out of ear. <laughs> yes. The good news is that unlike some forms of human impact, it will and could quite po- very lightly, or not, not lightly, but quite possibly be greatly diminished this century. So if, for example, we do move, (laughs) I'll get on to climate change, but if we move away from fossil fuels, 40% of the world's shipping is carrying oil and gas and maybe coal as well. And with the seismic service for oil, if that stopped, there would be, it would be one of the things that might help some of the life in the ocean to, to maintain its resilience for future generations of humans and Mm. (laughs) non-humans. You also write about healing with music. How does that work? Well, in so many ways. I mean, there are two chapters on healing. You know, I should say off the top, it would be probably painfully obvious to any actual expert. I'm no expert. I'm a curious person who's had a tried to learn um, a little bit. So but there's one chapter on he- the healing powers of sound and another on the healing powers of music. There are ways in which sound is used directly. I mean, ultrasound is an obvious case. I think many of us will be familiar with its use. And, and it can be used, certain sound waves can be used to do things like ablate a cataract in the eye. And then, of course, with music, there's good evidence that certain kinds of musical therapy can help people with depression. So the NHS has run some projects with mothers who have postpartum depression. And there's plenty of evidence that things like singing in a community choir, which is something I do myself, is very good for your mental health. It's cooperative, it's collaborative, it's fun. Mm. Whether the music itself is the what role that plays is is a good question. I think it does because it's about vibration, it's about breathing. I think there's some very important links there to human health. Yeah, absolutely. Michelle, you write that the important thing, as with all love, is that your feelings are sincere. Never pretend to love, never allow anyone to induce you to ignore, belittle or mock what you're really fond of. Let your love be sound. Uh, mm. And really that goes to the heart of the book in, in that d- don't be told what's cool and what's not cool. Although in your asides, you do tell us what's not cool. <laughs> do I? <laughs> well, sort of. Well, I, I look at music that is considered uncool and I ask what has made it considered uncool. The longer I've lived with this book and the more I've thought about music, the more I've realised that these things are culturally determined, that there, there is nothing intrinsic that makes it, inverted commas, cool or uncool. I do think that people in our culture are pressured and goaded to waste a lot of their precious time investigating things which the tribe have decided, you know, by way of the media, are the things that need to be checked out, the things that need to be purchased, the things that fill the conversation. And those things 
for many people, are not going to be the things that will sustain them and give them joy throughout the rest of their life. And every hour and week that they spend on those things is an hour and week that's lost when they could be being nourished by the things that they, as an individual, are meant to love. The problem, of course, is that the music that is exactly right for you may not be music that you can use to impress your peers or to fit in with your tribe or to get any sort of cred. And sometimes that requires a bit of bravery, that you step outside your peer group and your tribe and just be okay about loving the thing that other people don't care about at all. Mm. I mean, you pick this up, Casper. You say you talk about how music helps people find and define their place in the world and connect with others. I mean, it does. I'd just like to say I, I think uh, Michelle's book is, is really marvellous in so many ways. It's quite spiky in places and quite challenging. But uh, on this point of love, I mean, <laughs> come back to Shakespeare, it's, 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 it's King Lear, speak what we feel, not what we ought to say, right? You know, that's mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. And we are, but we are tribal beings. So, of course, we're inevitably shaped so deeply by the music of our peers. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong. I'm not Welsh, but I really like the Welsh national anthem it's an incredibly stirring piece of music and it's very tribal but it's also a great piece of music and well of course it connects us to our group to our but also perhaps to to people we don't know i just mentioned you know not welsh but i don't feel anti-welsh in any way either and that, that could go much much further afield so we were talking about the bayaka or extraordinary musical traditions from places that we don't know much about that you know maybe if we're ready to listen a little bit it's one of the ways in which we can open up to the ways that uh, other humans express their sense of what it is to be alive. And that's an incredible adventure. I've, I've got a long playlist now from Michelle's book, a book <laughs> of music I didn't know before uh, or haven't yet encountered. Mm. And I'm really looking forward to learning more that way. <laughs> one of the um, overlaps between Casper's book and mine is that we sometimes look at similar things. For example, whether animals can enjoy the music that humans make. Casper tends to be gentler in that, in that respect, uh, less spiky, as he might put it, in that when he's looking at the people who think that they're jamming with the whales, he says, um, but it is hard to know how far, if at all, the whales are actually listening, which, you know, is, is, is staying on the fence, whereas I basically say, Forget it, baby. The whales are not listening. In fact, we may be really, really pissing them off. You, you write, though, about that wonderful video of the man playing to the blind elephant. Yes, yeah. And this... You made me go and look at the video, actually, and, 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 and your description of it upset me somewhat because I thought, yeah. well, you tell us the story. Well, you know, we humans would love animals to love music. It would be so nice if they did. And this particular video is of an eccentric pianist who is in an elephant sanctuary, inverted commas, in Thailand. And he is playing Bach to the elephant, the blind elephant. And, of course, there are hundreds of comments underneath about how it's restored their faith in human nature and made them feel better. And, of course, such things do make us feel better. But all the evidence suggests that... The elephants are not hearing what we're hearing. And, of course, scientifically, their range of hearing is so different from ours because they're hearing very, very low frequencies that we don't hear. And the way in which they behave with the flapping of the ears and so forth, 
It's highly likely that the music is not just not giving them joy, but possibly distressing them. And there are there are many instances of animals apparently responding to music enthusiastically, where they are in fact suffering. And this is hard for us to to take on board. And apart from Pan Benicia, who was a, a chimpanzee who sort of jammed with Peter Gabriel and seemed to be having a good time. Probably the best it gets is that our pet animals are happy when music is playing because we are happy and they are happy when we are happy. That's probably as close to to real enjoyment as they get. And I know that's heartbreaking. I know we would <laughs> so love it to be different, but, you know, that's mm. the way it is. Michelle, you really have it in for classical music. When you yeah, say you have do. it in... I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I have found it very, very difficult to bond with. I went through periods of years on end when I tried very, very hard to get to grips with it and to understand it and to find things to love in it. And, of course, in all those years when I listened to almost nothing except classical music, I did find a few things, but all the things I found during those years do not give me the joy that the first sort of 30 seconds of Are You Shivering by Coil gives me. So I look at why that might be. And in some ways, it's it's a bit like people trying to find objective reasons why they don't love somebody, when in fact, they just don't love them. But classical music is problematic. It is traditionally very classist. It's very racist. Um, there's a lot of snobbery, and I'm still encountering that snobbery in some of the classical musicians that I talk to. And there is that that deplorable sense that music ended in 1940 or whatever, and that, that all the great things were in the past, and now it's just our duty to reconstitute and do justice to the glories of the past. I mean, a, a very emblematic example of that was when I was given a lift by a Icelandic classical pianist. I was hitchhiking through Scotland. And we talked for ages. And he had gone to school with Björk. He had no respect for Björk whatsoever. She was just a little pop musician. Her skills were very rudimentary. And, you know, he was playing the glories of Bach and Beethoven and, and Brahms. And I asked him if he composed... And he said, no, no, he doesn't have time to compose because he has to keep up the dexterity in playing the repertoire. And I thought, this is so wrong. This is, this is not what music should be about. And in fact, if you told that anecdote to Beethoven and Mozart, they would think it was so weird and so wrong because they were improvisers and they, they were making up music on the spot and jamming with fellow musicians. So yes, I, I think the degree to which classical music is still trapped in that museum notion of performing the old piece exactly in the tempo and, you know, taking note of the little marginal notes about whether it should be diminuendo here, etc. I think that's really, really bad news. But there is a, a new generation of classical musicians who love their Beethoven, love their Bach, but, you know, also grew up listening to dance music and who do love Björk and who do get why Björk is extraordinary. And they are 
possibly going to create a hybrid of those sorts of skills and the openness to more recent sounds. Mm. I think that is starting, but it's still got a long way to go because those structures, those classical structures are very well entrenched. You talk about Beethoven and Mozart and so on being being really innovators of their time. What's happening now? Is there new technology? Yes, I think there is a huge amount happening. And I'd, I'd just like to say quickly that I, I think... I completely get what Michelle's saying and I completely agree I just you know I come across classical musicians who are the latter type and Mm -hmm. just take great joy in every kind of music and they're hopefully just as much adventurous and curious as any kind of person who enjoys music and and that's where we want to be I mean there is I think you know the great part of the huge change in the what among several huge changes in the 20th century was the advent of electronic music the capacity to use electricity to make sounds and we're still living through that kind of maybe that explosion and what all that follows from it. Some of the early stuff, like theremins, now sound a little bit quaint. But it's interesting that uh, in- instruments like the Ond Martino, which I think dates from the 30s or 40s, used by people like Johnny Greenwood in their music and mm-hmm. uh, to good effect. You know that. And then, of course, you know that increasingly we've got AI creating music. I'm, I, I, there were, I think there was a brilliant, excellent article by a man named Yaron Lanier, who's often described as the father of virtual reality, an early worker in that area, a computer scientist, who's also a musician. He loves to play the oud. And um, he, he's one of those who's maybe a bit cantankerous these days. He's kind of, you know, he's in his 60s or so. But he's an evangelist for the importance of embodiment and playing musical instruments with the human body mm-hmm. um, rather than, you know, you can have AI create remarkable things but where's the humanity and he makes it it's a half joke it's like you know would you have your robots have sex for you what's the point you know <laughs> and, and uh you know i think as it becomes increasingly possible you know you or i could probably if we can't already do it go out and find a equivalent to chat gdp and say create something in the style of bjork which is has the harmonies of mozart but uh, has allusions to 17th century balinese music and you know the probably the computer could create it for you. But in a way, what would be the point? I mean, it might be fun, but you have much more fun. I mentioned I sing in a community choir. You know, doing the music yourself, I think that's hopefully something that will endure in the future, despite the extraordinary power of technology to do everything for us, seemingly, or control us on behalf of other people who want us to do things. Mm. You have a a section in your book about some good sounds, and you mentioned some sounds that you really like. And I wonder if you could give us an example of what you think is a really great sound. Well, I mean, it's just a... Yes, I mean, of course, there's a list of them and there's any number. I mean, they're very simple things. And for me, they're often natural sounds. So if you go to Orford Ness, it's a long spit of land on the coast of Sussex which has these beautiful steep shingle beaches and you can hear the waves turning the stones and uh, reordering them and creating these extraordinary patterns over time. It's just, you know, it's a it's a kind of sound that's, well, actually pebbles associated with rivers and so you you know you need the emergence of life to create the kind of rivers that create pebbles but nevertheless a sound that's been going for hundreds of millions of years and still I think resonates and I mentioned another one for me I had grandparents in Hampshire when I was small and the church bells very English sound these peals of bells but they inhabit a landscape you've got these steep-sided hills and the resonance that's created it's like you have a a block of sound expressing and reflecting the land itself and the people who've lived on that land. And, I mean, just the sound of a 
the first glug of wine when it comes out of a bottle. It's that, you know, I've actually done that, you know, the same bottle and you pour it back in or you you don't quite let the wine out so you can make the noise again and again. <laughs> uh, of course, that's to do with anticipation and reward and the circuits in the brain. But mm. the sound has, for me, in a Pavlovian way, become associated with pleasure. What what is it, What is it for you? Well, I don't have access to those sorts of connections that Casper mentions there. A good example would be that when I hear church bells, I think of an album by Virginia Astley called From Gardens Where We Felt Secure, which is a lovely, lovely record made in 1982. And the church bells in that don't connect me with how I feel about church bells or the English countryside or my childhood or any of those things. They make me think of Virginia Astley making this outrageously cool album in the early 1980s when everyone else was using gated drums and these terribly harsh boxy sounds. And she's making this very gentle, Vaughan Williams-y pastoral music with the church bells that nobody else cares about and nobody's going to buy. And the poignancy of that, her her love of that and the extremity of how she really doesn't fit in with, you know, Spandau Ballet or whatever else was going on then, that for me gives me a warm feeling that, that she loved those sounds so much that she had the courage to put them into the marketplace when the marketplace was going to say, go away, we don't want this stuff. So I'd get to the warm feeling by a very roundabout route, whereas Casper gets it quite directly, that instant connection with what the church bells mm. mean. But either way, we get there in the end. Just one final question for you both. NASA has sent various craft up with CDs, I think yes. they are, on them, giving an example of what people might be able to hear on Earth. Yes, In the 1970s, 77, I think it was, Carl Sagan put together this golden record. It was actually an LP, but etched on metal rather than a shellac or whatever, and it will last, it's thought, up to a billion years. problem with CDs and electronic data storage technologies, it's more vulnerable to the slings and arrows and buffets of space. <laughs> but, There's also disc rot. And disc, well, yeah, but this is, this. I think it's uh, copper coated in gold and it's thought right. it will last a very long time. Uh-huh. They put on, I think they had space, for, they put photographs and the greetings from the, the UN. And But anyway, it has these like, I forget how many, it's about 30 tracks and it has Bach, predictably. It has Chuck Berry, it has... Bulgarian folk music, which is incredible, you know, this astonishing vocal yes. sound. It has all kinds of stuff. And there have been any number of discussions since. What would you put on the record next time? What would you, what would you want to be on it? Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, it's, I, I'm kind of... And so obviously you can see I'm, I'm just stalling for time because I can't uh, choose anything. <laughs> but uh, Well, you know, one, th- <laughs> one thing that was on the original was Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. And I think... From my point of view, as as an example of what humans are capable of musically, it doesn't get much better than that. So I'm I'm very happy for that to go on the next one. Well, I have to say, in terms of writing about music and sound, it doesn't get much better than this either. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Faber, Listen on Music, Sound and Us is published by Canongate and Casper Henderson, A Book of Noises, Notes on the Oraculus is published by Granta. Thank you both very much indeed for coming on Meet the Writers. (laughs) 
thanks also to our producer, Tamsin Howard, and our sound engineer, Mariella Bevan. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud, or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.